Uh, if you missed the introduction, my name is Michael. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Halifax. Glad to see you all. So happy that you can be with us for worship this morning. If you look at the back middle portion of the worship guide, you'll see the, the text on which our sermon is based this morning. Uh, we are in Psalm 8, so if you have a, a physical Bible or you've got uh, the worship guide, you're welcome to turn to Psalm 8 now. We've been going through the Psalms uh, over the last two summers. We're going sequentially. We're in Psalm 8, if that tells you anything about the speed in which we're going. Uh, the, the book of Psalms, let me just give you a little introduction to what it is. It is, it is the songbook of God's people. It's the melody of the maturing Christian life. God himself gives us the Psalms uh, through authors like King David here in Psalm 8, so we can know God better. And so we can know ourselves better. These songs, they celebrate, they consider, they meditate on God's power, on his glory. They teach us to trust in God's goodness and care for us. And, and really, perhaps there's no finer example of all that's precious about the Psalms than Psalm 8, what we have in front of us right now. This is a glorious psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. Uh, it brings us uh, up to the heights of heaven and down to the very depths of the sea. It considers all of God's grandeur and majesty, and then it, and then it focuses on the tininess of, of humans and his care for us. As we sing this song together, as we meditate it uh, over the next half hour or so, together, as we reflect it to our God, we're becoming the kind of people that God's made us to be. So let me encourage you to turn to Psalm 8 now. In your Bibles, Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, this morning we sing that your name is majestic, that, that you are worthy of praise and celebration. You are good, you are holy, you are wise and loving. We're so glad for this privilege this morning uh, that is given to us through Christ to call you our Lord and to be found to be your people. Would you now please bless the preaching of your word, the hearing of it? Would you speak to us now by the power of your spirit? Would you mold, melt, and move our hearts to believe your word, to grow in faith, to become more like Christ, your beloved Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Well, Psalm 8, as you heard it read, is a celebration of God's name. Biblically speaking, a person's name embodies their reputation. So to speak of a person's name is to speak of their very identity, the core of who they are. We know a little bit of this 
uh, of course, and it's very common for us to know that there are uh, names that are associated with the person themselves. So in English, in older times, your last name would be intimately connected with your vocation, with your career, with your trade, with your craft. So long ago, a family's craft would be essential to that family's very identity, who they were, the kind of people they were, and your name would reflect that. So if you were a blacksmith, you would be John Smith. Uh, if you cared for uh, the chambers of nobles, you would be Susan Chamberlain. Your name embodied your reputation, your character, your very identity. And sometimes a person's name uh, or character is so notorious, so well-known broadly for good or for bad, that saying their name immediately calls to mind that person's character, what makes them tick. So you would not lightly name your child Einstein or Zeus or Hitler or, or Judas um, because of what those names are associated with. You wouldn't want your child to be associated with that character, with that reputation. If you look at Psalm 8, you can see that it's bookended by two matching verses, both in Psalm uh, verse 1 and verse 9. And in both of those verses, again, you see that celebration of God's name. How majestic is your name? The psalmist is celebrating who God is and what he's done. So the question for us is, what is God's name? What should God's name, his reputation and identity, call to our mind whenever we speak it? What's his character like? What has he done? And why does knowing God's name matter so much to us? Why ought it matter to us? Why should we learn to celebrate? Why should we sing about his name as we're being taught here in Psalm 8? Well, this is what we're going to see today. Our outline's pretty simple, and it's this. Knowing God's name gives us our name. Knowing God's name gives us our name. When we know God's name, when we sing it, when we celebrate it, when we revel in it, we learn more about who we are. You could say it this way. Knowing God's identity gives us our identity. Now more than ever in history, the search for identity, to know who we really are, is more frenetic, more desperate, uh, more, more sad, more pitiful than it ever has been. People have no idea who they are, no clue. They don't know why they're here, they don't know what they're here for, and they're desperately looking for answers in all the wrong places. In his excellent book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman, he traces from pre-modern and ancient thought up through our postmodern age, different ways that people have come to understand who they are, uh, where they can learn their name, their identity. Ancient and pre-modern people, they held to an understanding of who they were through what Charles Taylor, uh, the Canadian philosopher, calls a mimetic view. They held to a mimetic view because they believed that the world and everyone and everything in it was created by God. Reality had a given, knowable order. There's a rationality intrinsic to creation. And so human beings could discover or receive meaning and identity from outside of themselves and be conformed to it. So asking the question to an ancient or pre-modern person, who are you really? Like, who are you on the inside? It would be a nonsense question. It wouldn't make any sense to them because they operated from a mimetic view. They wouldn't look inside for trying to answer that question. They would look outside. They would look to their family. They would look to their family's occupation, to their religion, to their uh, nation, their sex, their station in life. And they would conclude simply, it's, it's easy to know who I am. You know, I'm, I'm Susan Smith. I'm a, I'm a Christian woman of Scotland. That's just an arbitrary idea. <laughs> but that, it wouldn't be hard for them to figure that out. It wouldn't take much searching. 
In contrast, the modern, postmodern age we live in has introduced an alternative to the mimetic view, which Charles Taylor calls the poetic view. The poetic view rejects the mimetic view's belief that the world is created by God and has an objective, knowable, given nature to it that we can derive our identity from. Instead, the world and everyone and everything in it is just raw material, raw energy that exists. It's not created. It has no given meaning. It has no given purpose that's intrinsic to it. And so it falls on us as individuals to create our own meaning. That's what we're here for, to find our own identity just using the stuff, the matter, the energy that exists purposely around, purposelessly around us. This, by the way, is the theme of every Disney movie, kind of subtly or out front. The hero or the heroine boldly says, no one can tell me who I am, only I can tell me who I am. My name is not received from anything or anyone external to me. It must be realized and found internally. I might have been born a princess, you know, destined to rule a kingdom of some sort, but that outer reality doesn't matter. The inner true me is, you know, a traveling warrior or, you know, a carefree nobody or something. And there's different, different ways that people operating from this poetic view might try to create meaning and identity for themselves. And each one of them, it, frankly, is devastating. It's deeply sad. Ultimately, it's destructive. And we see this around us all the time. And I'll give you three common ones, three common ways that people try to create meaning and identity. Uh, they can find it through industry, through uh, inner listening, and through invention. So finding identity, purpose, finding their name through industry, inner listening, or invention. So through industry, that is through their own hard work, whether that's accumulating wealth or power or prestige or reputation, they think that through these self-made efforts, they can find who they really are. They can be a self-made independent person. But for anyone who's around people who are eagerly trying to find who they are through their work, you know that this can inevitably lead to broken relationships to realizing, sadly, after many years of the pursuit, that life is for far more than acquiring stuff. Uh, joy and fulfillment and, and the identity that our society tends to tell us that we will find, that we will be satisfied with at the end of our pursuit of identity through industry, many have found that this is just a dead end. We're made for so much more. Sometimes operating at the same time as identity through industry is identity through inner listening. Uh, if I'm in tune with my feelings and my deepest desires and longings, I can find out who I am. But if anyone's spent any time without, you know, their Apple uh, ear, earbuds in, you know, listening to music, they're, they're just in the quiet, alone, listening to their own inner thoughts, uh, you know that we're a mess of contradictory, competing thoughts and feelings and emotions. There's, there's no way to know which voice is the true voice. Uh, there's no rational reason to think that one voice, uh, that one feeling, is more valid or more worthy to build your life on than any other. And this inevitably leads to an emotionally unstable and fragmented sense of self. It removes the hope of, of solidity and contentment that we actually long for. We become anchorless. We're just driven along by every gust of uh, desire and emotion that comes into our hearts. This is no way to live. It's no way to find an identity. Uh, but there's a third one. We've got identity through, uh, through industry, through inner listening. And third, we've got it just through raw invention, just inventing one, just constructing for ourselves whomever we want to be. We don't need to listen to our inner feelings. We don't need to consider anything external to us. We just need to create ourselves from the ground up. 
And this is the most postmodern of the three. It's the most recent on the scene. Uh, but this is where people just freely create for themselves wild, previously unimaginable identities and personas, con social configurations, uh, ways of governing people. And really, the more subversive to traditional norms of personhood or society that this identity is, the more free and unique a person can claim to be. But as Truman notes in his book, though, there seems to be an inevitable trend towards cruelty in this endeavor. The darkest, most violent, most selfish, most irrational desires are suddenly given free reign with no constraint to invent whatever realities best suit our tastes in any given moment. If my identity is whatever I want it to be, if reality is itself whatever I say it is, then who are you to stop me from getting whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, no matter how many people might be hurt? This is who I am. This is reality. There's no way for society to function if our identity, if our social relationships, if our understanding of reality itself is just completely up to grabs to each individual to create, to invent from the ground up as they see fit. This is a train wreck personally, culturally, socially, and it's so sad. It's destructive. Where else can we go, though? Where can we find a true, stable, satisfying identity? Well, the root is not simply to go back to ancient times, you know, to become blacksmiths and be like, oh, my, my whole identity is in my vocation right now. Uh, this is who I am. But rather, it's to seek your identity in God. Tim Keller, speaking on these issues, he wisely concludes, therefore, that identity, who we are, is not a philosophical or a personal issue. It's a theological issue. It's a worship issue. Knowing God's name gives us our name. That is the only safe and secure place that you can know who you are. So look at verse 1 again. What's God's name? Who is he? You might notice uh, in our text that the first of the two uh, lords uh, written in uh, verse 1 and verse 2, the first one is capitalized. It's all caps. The second one is not. And that's intentional. That's a translation choice. Because the word in Hebrew uh, for the first lord, the all caps one, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And this is the personal covenantal name of the God of Israel. This is not referring to some Lord or some God that's an impersonal, uh, mysterious force, not someone who's unknowable and indifferent to humanity. Rather, this is Yahweh who, who rescued God's people from Egypt. This is the God of the Exodus. It was Yahweh who in history past heard his people cry out when they were slaves in Egypt, moved heaven and earth to set them free from oppression, from the hard labor of their enemies. It was Yahweh who in the generations after the psalm was written performed the greater Exodus, sending his son to weakened and desperate humanity to set them free from slavery to sin and death and the devil. This is what Christ has come to do. What's God's name? What's his character like? What, what, what is he uh, in his very core? He's Yahweh, the God who works in history to rescue his people, who hears us, who knows us. Uh, the somewhat odd saying in verse 2 that describes how Yahweh loves to work, that, that uh, we're speaking of infants and babies, it shows that this is how Yahweh loves to work. He, he loves to, to use what's weak in the world, babies, nursing infants, the most vulnerable and powerful among us, to shame and silence the strong. He takes what's seemingly foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise. 
In Exodus, God made the powerless slaves prevail over the powerful. In Christ's rescue, it's not the people who think that they're healthy and strong. He comes for, he comes for the weak and sick. This is what Yahweh is like. This is, this is what makes him distinct. This is his identity. The second Lord, the one that's in, in lower caps in verses 1 and 9, is the Hebrew word uh, simply for master or for sovereign. This is the same word that would be used for, for a king or for a ruler. Yahweh is Lord, but he is our Lord. The God who loves to rescue the weak and the vulnerable, he is our master and commander. Yahweh is, is powerful, but he's not Zeus. He's not Thor, right? That's not his identity. That's not his character. He is mighty and powerful, but he's our Lord. He has a people that he loves, that he cares for. Psalm 8 goes on to describe God's mastery, his lordship in his work of creation. Who God is is seen both in in the earth below and in the heavens above. Uh, At the end of verse 1, you see your glory Your glory is above us in the heavens. It can be seen in the sky above us. So much of Psalm 8 harkens back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The Genesis story, if you're familiar with it, tells us how in the beginning when there was nothing, Yahweh created the heavens and the earth out of nothing by the power of his word. It was God himself who spoke the sun, the moon, the stars into existence, the earth its waters, its land and vegetation, all of the incredible diversity of animal life that's in the air and on the land and in the sea, his crowning work of creation, uh, his image bearers, men and women. God simply spoke and they were. He called them into being and they came to be. Uh, Me and the kids were, uh, my kids and I, we're at the Discovery Center recently, and we went into the theater area where you can, there's a starry night kind of thing where you can look at the night sky and they can zoom into different parts. And of course, because of the Hubble and the James Webb, Webb telescope, what to the naked eye in a night sky just looks like a little smudge. They can zoom you in, you know, up a couple hundred light years so that you can see these unbelievable, majestic, awesome, beautiful galaxies. Stunning in color and diversity and power and strength, incomprehensible in size. Verse 3 of Psalm 8. This is the work of Yahweh's fingers. All of these unbelievable celestial bodies, Yahweh set them into place. This is his doing. This is what this God does. We celebrate artists locally for their creativity and brilliance. That's a very nice watercolor. You're, you're fantastic. You're so skilled. God's the ultimate artist. The one whose words are spoken and take on three dimensions, move and have a being. He is the majestic creating God. Knowing this God, celebrating this God, singing about this God, knowing his name gives us our name. See, the desperate search that many people are on, that perhaps some of you here have been on journeying for for a long time, perhaps you feel the fruitlessness of it, unless you're starting here with God, the God who made you who knows you, who gives us our purpose and dignity. This is the Lord who has come to rescue and redeem us, and only he can tell us who we are. Now, many of us might say this is true. It's easy to say that that we believe that God gives us our meaning and identity, Uh, but every Christian in the West, everyone here present, grew up within the modern, postmodern framework, within that poetic view, dominating through your education, through your environment, through your entertainment. We've been bombarded to believe at some level, at least, that we can actually find who we are through industry, through inner listening, or through invention. We might confess with our lips that, that we are followers of God, that we can only learn our name as we know God's name, but we often operate within this poetic view. 
Our hearts and our actions lag behind our earnest Christian confession. And so God helps us in our weakness. He gives us true songs to sing, to, to wake us up, to snap us back to reality, to remind us of the story that we're actually in. If, you, if you've got your Bible, uh, turn, to, turn to Psalm 100. I, I'm going to read Psalm 100 for us. And, and this was an important psalm for me. Um, at, at the rate we're going through the psalm series, it will be a couple decades before we get to Psalm 100, so we might as well just read it now so, so we can at least have it in our minds. And it goes up to 150. We're in eight right now. Uh, for a long time, before worship, I would read Psalm 100. Uh, I, I, I would consider it because it was like, it was like a smelling, it was like smelling salts for me. <laughs> because I, with all of my existential angst that's bouncing around my heart all the time, I would, go, I would get into worship like, what am I doing here? What is going on? Who am I? What is God? What is worship? I, I, I felt lost on a consistent basis. Didn't know what was going on. And Psalm 100 was clear, sobering, refreshing, cool water that God would pour into my spirit as I read it in worship. And let me just read it for you now. Who am I? What am I doing here? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. D did you hear this? Do you hear why I needed this song? Why perhaps you need songs like this too? I learned God's name in this psalm. God is the creator. He's the king. And so who am I? I'm his creation. I'm, I'm dependent. I'm limited. I'm non-divine. Uh, who is God? Well, he's my shepherd. And so who am I? I'm his sheep. He delights to care for me. He feeds me. Who, who is God? What is his name? God is good. His steadfast love and faithfulness just doesn't stop. So who am I? I'm somebody who's welcomed by him. He will never tire to welcome me into his presence during worship. I can enter into his gates with thanksgiving. This is something I can sing about, I can be glad about. Psalm 8 is making the same case, that knowing God's name gives us our name. Verse 4 of Psalm 8 uh, is the very center of the psalm. Uh, a lot of psalms are, are crafted like this when they're bookended by matching verses. They're kind of pointing in together to a central idea, to something that kind of uh, is essentially important to the psalmist. Um, David, who the psalm is attributed to, he does what many of us have done, staring up into a cloudless, dazzling, starry night. Just ask, who am I? I'm so small. God, look, look at what you've made. Look at, look at your heavens. It's incredible. It's huge. It's powerful. It's stunning. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? But both of these, of course, are, are masculine terms in Hebrew, but idiomatically, they just refer to all humanity, humankind, men and women. We, we, we sing this staggering reality that the God who made the heavens knows us, cares for us, is mindful of us. Uh, in Psalms like Psalm 139, uh, how is it that such frail, minuscule, messy creatures are the objects of God Almighty's intense delight and love to know that you've searched me and known me? You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. It's staggering to think of. And yet true, who are you? Psalm 8 says that you are someone that God is mindful of. Someone whom Yahweh, the God who made all things in the beginning, is filled with care for. Now contrast this identity with, uh, with the Calvin and Hobbes panel, where Calvin is standing under a night sky and he screams, I'm significant! And then the next panel, he says, screams the speck of dust. It's, it's difficult to find meaning and purpose and identity to know our significance if we are just raw energy and matter floating throughout the universe with no creator, no meaning, no purpose intrinsic to us, but just something that we've created for ourselves. We might scream, I'm significant, but in the depths of our hearts, we know that we're not. Knowing God's name gives us our name. This promise in Psalm 8 that God Almighty Yahweh knows us, is mindful of us, is meant to stagger us. Uh, It's meant to surprise and delight us. Though God is great, though we are very small, smaller than a speck of dust, he knows us, he cares for us. Verse 5 reminds us of our frailty, uh, that there exists heavenly beings. If you look at verse 5, there are personal, unseen, spiritual beings whom humanity is a little lower than. We've got bodies that are frail, that fall apart. Uh, We need food, we need sleep, we need shelter to survive. Our time on earth is very limited. Uh, We're more limited than these heavenly beings, whatever they may be. And yet, despite these weaknesses, in verse 5, God has crowned us with glory and honor. In verse 6, he's given us dominion over the works of his hands. See, the rest of the psalm describes the glory and honor and dominion God's given humans over his creation. This is what humans are like. They're like vice regents in a kingdom. Uh, The king has given authority to rule over his kingdom in his name and authority. Or using a picture that Jesus often uses, uh, we're tenants that God has given a vineyard over to for a short time that we're called to garden, to cultivate, to grow good things in. This is a great passage if you're a conservationist or you, or you love animals. Uh, every creature that's in the sky and in the earth and in the sea below is, in a sense, under humanity's feet. This is a great privilege, but also a heady responsibility for us. We're not a plague on the planet. We're not, we're not a disease that the planet needs to be rid of. God the Creator has made this world and everything in it and given it to humans to care for and cultivate in His name for His glory. So who are you? What's your name? Knowing God's name gives you your name. You are made with incredible dignity and glory. You are made to cultivate, to create art, to preserve and beautify God's creation all around you. This is your mission. This is who you are. You are made to make a difference in the world. Your labor is not in vain. It's not meaningless. You are made for this. God's glory, his brilliance, our smallness, yet our dignity in the end brings David back to the beginning. If you look at verse 9, he ends how he started. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We learn who we are as we worship God, as we know God. This psalm pushes us into doxology. That means praise before anything else. It's It's our duty to know God through our praise. So friends, this is the invitation to you as we close our time. This is what our magnificent God offers to anyone willing to come. It's to know him. To know his name, know him through the person of Jesus, our Savior and friend. Hebrews 2 quotes from Psalm 8 uh, and marvels that the creator of these distant galaxies 
became small. Jesus condescended. He took on flesh and lived among us. Hebrews 2 says that it was Jesus who became, for a time, a little lower than the angels. He did this, the creator of the heavens, so that we could have peace with God, so we could know God through the blood of his cross. And so this is what you're called to do today, to know this God, to know his name as as we sing our praises, as we read his word, and in knowing his name, to know our name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. You've been kind to reveal yourself most clearly to us in your son Jesus, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. God, we we confess to you trying to find our identity in things that simply will not last, things that will destroy us and our families and the world around us. God, have mercy on us. Help us to become worshipers, to admire you and your creation and to find our place in it. Lord, we thank you uh, for this song. Would it become our own? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.